Well, if you've been around uh, over these last few weeks, you know that we've been looking at Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, trying to hear what Paul is saying to that small church in that massive city at the time, and trying to also hear what God might be saying to us. Um, And we've got as far as uh, chapter 8. We spent a lot of time thinking about the struggles that we face, um, the real struggles and the big struggles, actually. Um, the, the struggles with sin, the struggles with who we are, the struggles with what God might want to do for us. And uh, you get to points in Scripture, and, and this is so obvious, it, it barely really needs saying, except you get to certain points of Scripture where the word therefore comes. And, and when you hear that word, you know that the writer is getting to a point where he's saying, That's, this is what I've been trying to get at. This is where all of this has been leading to. And the eighth chapter begins with exactly that word, therefore. Last week, we looked at that whole battle that goes on inside of us. We want to do the right thing, but all so often, we find ourselves struggling with with exactly the opposite going on inside of us. Paul begins chapter 8, then, in this way. If you've got a Bible, then read with me. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful humanity to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in human flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who don't live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their mindset on what that nature desires but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their mindset on what the spirit desires. The mind controlled by the sinful nature is death and the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, you, you're not controlled by the sinful nature, but you're in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone doesn't have the spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive doesn't make you slaves so that you live in fear again. But the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. 
if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may share in his glory. What Paul is wanting to do with these Christians in Rome is try and help them see that if they understand what God is wanting to do in them, they will live radically differently. And they'll have something to demonstrate to the rest of the city. This is a better way of living. There is actually an alternative to the way that Rome does things. There's an alternative to the way things are around here. Well, as I keep saying, we spent a lot of time thinking about sin. And not just individual sins, but sin, almost with a capital S. This idea that right from the beginning, right from the garden, sin kind of got loose. And it almost like this personality keeps dragging you back away from anything to do with the good God. And sin destroys his good creation. It's sin that breaks relationships. It's sin that isolates and makes you feel that you're on your own and no one understands you. It's sin that destroys what's good. It's sin that robs you of peace and joy. And I kind of found it really helpful for myself just to keep on reminding myself that it's almost like sin is this character. This, it, it's not just, ah, oh, I made a mistake again, but it's almost like sin is actively working against God's good creation. In some ways, it's kind of the way we describe sometimes the enemy or the devil. God wants such wholeness and shalom and peace and, and perfect. And sin keeps working against it, wanting to destroy it. And sometimes even we find ourselves pushing the self-destruct button ourselves. So the thing that God would have longed for for us is somehow broken. But the problem with it all is it becomes quite abstract if we're not careful. And so I was trying to think, well, actually, how can we, uh, how can we try and make sense of this? Um, the little piece of paper simply says, when are you going to change? And I was trying to think of a scenario where you want to change and perhaps sometimes you're with someone and you wished they would change. Now, I want to make it really clear this has got nothing to do with me. But, <laughs> I've read about it. And um, I, I imagine this sort of scenario, that someone will say to you or to I, or indeed you might say about someone else, you really need to change because you are so selfish. You just want everything your own way. And in some homes, in some households, it might go like this. The conversation is, well, what am I doing wrong? And it becomes, well, actually, you never think about me. You're always wanting to do your own thing. And you don't pull your weight around the house. So the conversation develops. And because you want to change, because actually none of us want to be selfish, truth be known, you end up saying, okay, so this is what I'm going to do. And you say, if you're a man, you might say this. You say... Every day, I will ask about your day first. So when I come in and you come in, I will always ask you about your day. I will promise that I will not watch as much sport as perhaps I have done. And when the kitchen's in a big tip, um, 
I'll sort it out and I won't live like a slob. <laughs> Should we just give Natalie a call and say, if you'd like to come, now's a really good time? Uh, pardon? <laughs> yeah, it's not. Um, okay? And, and you, you know, even if your situation is different, you can imagine the sort of scenario. It's just, it's just an example where you start to make promises. And you say, okay, in order that this situation might be better, this is what I'm promising to do. I'll always ask, I'll not watch as much football or sport, and, um, and when the kitchen gets messy, I'll sort it out. And uh, if you're the one that has been called out because you've been selfish, you now know I've got to work really hard to keep doing what I don't find easy to do. And if you're the one that sort of said, right, well, that's brilliant. If you're going to do that, things would be different around here. You become the one who's now saying, huh, let's see. And what goes on is, well, actually, before I go any further, I want to say there's something really good about that conversation. Because someone's owned up and someone said, actually, we could make something happen different around here. That's a good thing. But actually, underlying it, some of us know what might happen next. Because after, depending on how good we are, after about three or four days, the person to whom the promise has been made starts saying, you've stopped asking me about my day. And the person who made the promise goes, yeah, but I was up to here today. It was a really bad day. Or they start saying, actually, you're back watching football all the time. And then you have to explain, yeah, but those five football matches were really important. All right, I just needed to know how Barnsley would get on in the FA Cup bars. It, it, it was a really important weekend. Or the kitchen gets a mess again, and you, and you simply become blind to the, the, the mess that's going on. And then you end up saying, well, if you're not careful, you'll find yourself saying, well, it's not my stuff. Or, which actually is always a bad move, or, because <laughs> to be honest, you find the knife is... Um, <laughs> Or you say, I didn't have time and I rushed. And even in the best of relationships, now I've just made that one up, but you probably know similar conversations that have happened on both sides of any relationship. And it's not necessarily the relationship where you live with, it's actually any sort of like friendship relationship it also happens with. You say, this is the problem, and someone says, well, actually, this is what I'm going to do to try and deal with it. And someone then starts to say, well, let's see if you actually manage it. And actually, the truth is, for most of us, what happens is we fail. The law that we made now stands against us. In fact, it's worse now. Because we made the promise. And we kind of said, that's going to be the way it's going to be. And we failed. And now it's like, we've now not only got the resentment about the issues, but it's now the resentment because you made the promise and you broke your promise. And one person's become a judge and one person's become a failure. And the law, the law that we created between us stands against us and is going, you failed. You failed. And you failed again. And in some situations, that becomes the breaking point. And in other situations, it just becomes, okay, well, I'll live with fewer expectations. 
And I think that what Paul is wanting to get at in this eighth chapter is, is a situation that that kind of is an illustration of. Because what he's wanting to say is, it's not simply about managing sin. Because actually the promises are simply, how can I manage sin? But actually, how do you get to the root of who you are? Because what the problem with that, and please, I know I'm doing this quite quick, but the problem with just making new promises is we're dealing with the behavior. We're not dealing with the root. You're selfish. Well, I'll do this then. But actually, the problem is, it's, it's me. It's the heart. It's who I am. There's something quite deep here. And Paul always is not simply saying, well, just deal with sin. Just manage it a bit better. Make some new resolutions. Try harder. Put some new things in place. Paul says, actually, there's a much deeper issue. Who's controlling you? Now, when, where's my Bible gone? When Paul is, um, when Paul does, picks up in verse 1 of chapter 8, he's actually picking up, not from verse uh, 25, really. He's going back cause, to chapter 7, verse 5 and 6. Verse 7 through to 25 is really like a long sort of digression. Paul often does that in his letters. Sometimes you think, Paul, have you just gone off at a tangent for a little while? And sometimes Paul does go off at a tangent. He has an idea, and you can hear him. And one of the ways that, it, why that happens is because it would happen to others. Because Paul doesn't write his letters himself. He's dictating his letters to someone else who's writing them down. So you, you understand how that would work. You, you start along one pathway of thought, and then suddenly you go, oh, by the way, and you go off on one, and then you have to come back. And so... What the big suggestion is, is that actually this goes back to chapter 7, verse 5 and 6. When we were controlled by our sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Again, he's using abstract language, but what he's saying is, I've died to that old way of life. I am no longer that same person. There's a prospect of actually being new. So verse, verse 1 of chapter 8 is, Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, actually, it's an obvious point, but the condemnation is only good the, the lack of condemnation is only good news for those who feel it. <laughs> You're not bothered. Why is that good news? But actually, for those of us who know, I've tried so many times, and I've failed so often, and I feel so rubbish. For someone to come in and go, actually, there's no condemnation. That's like, really? That sounds like good news. Whereas if you're going, you don't really bother, I'll just pick myself up and try again, because I can't actually do this. You don't feel condemnation. But actually, Paul recognizing this, always that fight that he was talking about before. You want to do the right thing, but actually you keep on failing. Let me tell you, Paul says, there's no condemnation because of what God has done. So what has God done? Well, he outlines four things. 
Firstly, recognise what God has done. Verse 3, for what the law was powerless to do, that thing that said this is what you should do, that the law itself does not give you enough strength to do the right thing. Even your promises doesn't give you the right strength to do the right thing. What the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful humanity to be a sin offering. What he's doing is that old gospel story of saying what God has done is God has taken the initiative and sent Jesus and Jesus came and he, in a sense, said to sin, this character of sin, do your worst. And sin launched itself at Jesus and killed him and Jesus rose from the dead. It's like, do your worst and I'll stand here. We long for someone to say to us, it can be different. Last night I was uh, catching up on uh, Jules Holland's later programme. You know the music programme some of you might be aware of. And uh, Sinead O'Connor was singing. Uh, Sinead O'Connor is the, the singer who shaved her head when she was 19 and she still is uh, shaven-headed at the age of 50. Give me an idea, but perhaps not. But interestingly, she sang a song on a new album, off a new album called Take Me to Church. Take Me to Church. And the song began by her saying, I don't want to be the woman I once was. I don't want to sing the songs I once sang. Take me to church. And the song is all about, take me to church where I can hear something new. Take me to church where I can actually receive something different. And because of her own issues and our own pain with certain sector of the church. She said, don't take me to the church that hurts me. Take me to the church that tells me the truth. Take me to church. And it's kind of like, it's fascinating if you can still do that and if you can uh, go back and watch it, watch her sing. Um, she sings it in a dog collar with a cross around her neck with her arms raised saying, take me to church. I'm longing, I'm longing for something that will say it can be different. And Paul gets to the eighth chapter and says, there is something that's different. And the difference begins because God sends Christ, who says, do your worst, and Jesus strips sin of its power. Sin and death do not have to have the final word. That's the big thing about the gospel. It's not just that you as an individual or me as an individual can have an, a relationship with God. It's that actually this way of the world that says always, always it's going to go wrong. That doesn't have the final word. Before you all came this morning, me and Tom were standing outside church waiting for you. And I felt quite optimistic before I started talking to Tom outside church this morning. And in five minutes, Tom gave me a different perspective on the whole world. Because he began the conversation, the five-minute conversation that we had before church, to saying, do you ever wonder why God bothered? <laughs> and, and we had a quite a deep theological conversation from that moment. He said, when you look round, do you ever wonder why God bothered? I don't know if he's had a bad week, but uh, we just... And there's days when actually you wonder, God, why did you bother? It's such a mess. But the gospel story says, I bothered because I loved and I created 
it's kind of almost like who God is. But in the midst of it, I sent Christ who comes and says, do your worst. And I will, Jesus says, I will demonstrate to you that death and sin will not have the final word. And so the next, that's in verse three, but the next move is, so come and admit your need. It's like Sinead O'Connor, take me to church. Let me come into a place where I can hear a new truth. Admit that sometimes it's not just that we do selfish things. Or it's not just that we're sorry for the consequence of our actions, but actually we're sorry for the sin itself. Sin has owned us. And Paul says, those who live, verse 5, those who live according to the sinful nature have their mindset on what that nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mindset on what the Spirit desires. It can be different. Accept the forgiveness and then that brilliant moment where Paul says, it's not just about you trying harder, but it's the Spirit that actually wants to come in and deal with us. The work of the Spirit. You, many of you will know that the word Spirit uh, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language, was the word for wind or breath. And it has that same sort of feeling in the New Testament. It's like the breath of God, the very active life of God. It's the spirit that brooded over creation in the beginning. It's the spirit that was blown into Adam and Adam became a living person. It's the spirit that overshadowed Mary at the birth of Jesus and something new and absolutely amazing was born, the Messiah. It's the spirit who came upon Jesus so when Jesus did his first sermon, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to liberate prisoners, to bring good news for those who are oppressed. It's the spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, that power of God. And Paul says something now that I think we've either got to go with it or you say at this point, it's ridiculous. That spirit is the spirit that God blows into us. Now, there's part of me that really wants to sort of like pause and scream at this and say, either that's true or it is. We are absolutely bonkers. Let's be right about this. This is not about people wanting to live a little bit more religiously. This is a promise that says either that's true. And if that's true, the very life of God wants to blow into us that we might live with that new power, that new sense of the life, that new breath. In us. And it's kind of like you've got to, at this point, don't do this, <laughs> just in case you're tempted. At this point, I'd almost rather have half of you go, I think we'll leave now because you're absolutely bonkers. And half of you stay and say, well, if that's true, I'm really going to go for it. Rather than all of us go, oh, very nice, uh, good, well, excellent, brilliant. Because it's like so outrageous. Because what we are suggesting is, well, what Paul's suggesting, is that on this planet Earth, there are some people wandering around who've had an experience of God where the life of God is actually filling us and enabling us to live differently. And there's a whole stack of people who don't know about that yet. You try to explain that to your neighbor. It's quite remarkable. But that's the promise. 
You are not controlled by the sinful nature, but you're in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death, even though your body is giving way, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. I wish I was preaching in a Pentecostal church. <laughs> the Spirit of God living in you. So we're different. The life of God breathing in us, bringing life to our mortal bodies, bringing resurrection to those who die before Jesus returns. And he goes on in verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Some brilliant promises. He says, if for those of us who are, who have received the Spirit, who, for whom the life of God lives within us, the promise is this, that you are led by the Spirit of God. It's no longer just saying, I'm going to try harder. It's no longer just saying, I'm going to make some rules for myself that I must not break. It's actually now that the Spirit of God is leading us in a way that says, is this the way of love? How can I love here? How can I serve here? How can I make a difference here? I'm going to tell you a story that I'm, I'm, I'm two minds about. Um, I'm not sure whether this is a, a good thing, um, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Um, it, it's a bit cheesy, but anyway, enough qualification. Uh, me and Mags have been married nearly 30 years, 30 years next year. And, um, and uh, when, when, when we're out together, we still hold hands. Yeah, that's why I was wondering about but I'll tell you. <laughs> and uh, we'll walk hand in hand. And to the outward eye, it might well look like two middle-aged people who still uh, want to hold hands. And there's a large measure of truth in that. However, what no one else will know just by looking is what's actually happening. Because when we are out together, I am being led by the hand. <laughs> No one would know that simply by looking, but suddenly I find myself being drawn to places that I would not choose. And it's not, I'm not dragged, because I'm, 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 we've been married too long for that. Um, but I am being drawn, and sometimes it's just the tilt of a hand, and suddenly I find myself in places that I never realized I was going. Now, no one, I hope, I hope, I really, really hope no one would see that, because um, I've got this sort of macho exterior that I wish to... Um, you know, project. Um, but that's actually what's happening. I'm also kind of hoping, don't tell me now, but I'm really kind of hoping I'm not the only person in the room that that happens to. But it might be. And when I think about what does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God, I think, I think there's a picture there of what it looks like. It's actually the life of God that imperceptibly, nobody else would know, no one else would recognize, but internally it's just like, go there. Have you seen that person? 
do that. And you'll be doing your everyday work, you'll be doing your everyday life, you'll just be doing the normal stuff. But the Spirit of God says, actually, you're mine, so I want to use you. And um, so, what about that? Now, the problem for lots of us is that we grow deaf to that, or we grow resistant to it, or we don't think that's what God's likely to do. But actually, the more we grow in him, the more we're aware of the spirit who lives within us. Actually, interestingly, the more you might become aware of the spirit going, this now. You're being led by the spirit of God. Wouldn't it be good if this morning you could look back and you'd go, I was absolutely quite aware of where the Spirit was leading me this week. Not because you're big-headed and not because you think you're better than anybody else. It's just because actually that's what God does. He says, you've been adopted to sonship. And when people in Rome would have been listening to this letter being read, they would have been slaves who understood what it meant to be adopted. Even in our own church, Paul and Pearl, you know that uh, a little while ago they adopted Emma. And uh, Emma had been fostered for a while. And as long as uh, Paul and Pearl were fostering Emma, Emma was in the care of social services. And uh, at any time, uh, Paul and Pearl could simply say to social services, we can't cope anymore, and they would take Emma away again. Or social services could step in and go, I don't think you're doing a good enough job now. And they could take Emma away. But once they adopted, Emma became part of the family. And social services could never say, we want to take her off you again, simply because... I mean, I, the analogy breaks down, because actually if something really, really, really bad goes, they can. But you know what I'm saying. It's not the same relationship. And, and Paul and Pearl don't get paid for Emma anymore, as they did when they were fostering because now it's a love relationship. And when Paul uses the adoption language of what it means to be a Christian, he uses adoption language. He says, you've been, you're God's. And he'll not let you go. And not give you over. And as he'll say at the end of this chapter, nothing can separate you from his love. No one can come in and go, ah, oh, you don't belong to God anymore adopted you as sons and by him we cry Abba father that word Abba is that word for the family word for father it's not now God's out there somewhere but actually you've been brought really close we're God's children and that's why the eighth chapter is so crucial because it's no longer simply about, I'm going to try harder. It's actually that the very life of God is at work, saying, you're mine. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to direct you. And I think it does affect us at home, if we allow it. I think it affects us in our friendships, if we allow it. I think it affects us at our workplaces, if we allow it. Because God's saying, I want to do something new here. Now, the Spirit is received the moment you surrender to Jesus. But then the ongoing life of the believer is that you have multiple encounters with the Spirit of God. It's not a one-off. 
but actually this life of the Spirit keeps on breathing into you and you keep on having newness. And in a sense, and it's an easy thing to say, but in a sense, for those of us who get to points where we go, I'm tired of just trying harder, Paul would say, receive the Spirit. Mm 